I'll probably finger pick for this one. Is that on here? Uh, yeah, it's up here. So. Place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I know that Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Then Jesus, just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say, four months more and then comes the harvest? But our our scripture reading for today comes from John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. We're going to do it a little bit differently this week, and I invite my reader helpers to come forward. We're going to read the scripture in something called a reader's theater where each of the voices of this story will be read by a different person. Uh, This comes to us, by the way, through uh, Luther Seminary, who used it in their chapels. Um, Julie will be reading the part of the narrator. Uh, Gary will be reading the part of Jesus. Um, Gail will be reading the part of the woman. I'll be reading the disciples. And you all, at the very, very end, will have the words on screen for you to read the part of the Samaritans. I'll cue you when it's your time. So hear the word of the Lord from John 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was making more baptizing, he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he went to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the jur- out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon, and a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. 
But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband. You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I know that Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman. But no one said, what do you want? Or, why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely he has not, no one has brought him something to eat. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony when she said, He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is, we, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. said. Now, now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you all for helping read the scripture and bring it to, to life for us in a different way. Carrying water like this woman was about to do is hard work. 
I know this because of my work in Laos and some of the remote villages way up in the mountains there. Uh, Women and children are the ones who often do this work, not usually men. And where we worked in these remote villages, a lot of our early work in a village was often having to do with water. See, households would spend an average of two and a half hours a day getting enough water to supply their needs. And not even for a lavish bath every day. That's just the bare minimum to drink and wash dishes and uh, wash your face and survive. Many of these Hmong villages that we worked with were on mountaintops or ridges. So they didn't have water sources available to them. They had to go down the mountain, down to a river or a spring to get water. They'd fill their water containers and they'd carry them back up. Sometimes it was a plastic jerry can or a tub or a bunch of gallon jugs they'd strap to their back. Or if there wasn't any plastic available in the village early on, sometimes they'd use big, huge bamboo pieces sectioned out and hollowed out and carried on your back in a basket. It's back-breaking work to have to carry every single drop of water that you need except maybe the bathing water, because if you're clever, you bathe down at the water source while you're getting the water and then carry it back and get all sweaty on the way back. And when we began working in a village, we'd always ask uh, an open-ended development question. Uh, What do you want to do together? Or or what resources do you have that you can contribute to doing something that you really want to do? And the answer always had something to do, at first, with water. We want clean water. We want running water. We need water. And, and, and we'd work with, our, with a village and with our team of engineers to figure out how to get water to that village. And we usually dug uh, gravity-fed water systems. Uh, together with villagers, we'd survey the area around and try to find a water source, no matter how far away, that was just a little bit higher than the village, enough to bring water down through pipes in as near as we could to the village so that people could have a, a source of clean water nearby. Occasionally, in some villages, that wasn't at all possible. They really were literally on a mountaintop. So instead, we would dig a well a little bit down from the mountain, and and, uh, they could get their water as as close as they could. And the village would provide labor, and they'd provide whatever locally available materials they could get, sand or gravel or rock. And we would supply our technical expertise, our engineers, and the pipes and fittings and things that you couldn't get in a mountainside village. Uh, the, the village would figure out which their preferred sources were, where the locations were, which sources of water were uh, spiritually unacceptable for whatever reason, or maybe could be somehow redeemed so that it would become acceptable. And my engineer colleagues would do their calculations and their surveys with GPS and with uh, the, the survey tools that they used to try to figure out the exact elevation of the source and plot a route along the way that would bring the water by gravity into the village. Now, again, no pumps. This is the middle of nowhere. There's no electricity, not enough money to run a generator to bring in water. So it's got to be downhill flow and pressure and seasonal variations and demand. The engineers had these fancy spreadsheets that they used to calculate all those things. And when the system was built, when the, the, the channels were dug and the pipes were laid and the cement was poured and the tank was made and the water started pouring out of the tap into the village, we had a celebration, of course. We'd, we'd bring, the village would kill a pig or a cow and we'd bring in some other food and um, some speakers and a tent and we'd have a big party with music and dancing and speeches and celebration. But I think the real joy came in each household every single day when they suddenly could spend those hours a day when they were getting water, they could suddenly do something else. 
Uh, women and children no longer had to spend all of their time getting water. No, they could, they could get water right by their house. So they could do other things. Women could go to literacy classes and learn to read and write. Uh, kids could go to school for more hours. Men could learn about new agricultural techniques. Uh, we could teach people about hand washing and hygiene and sanitation. People could build toilets near their houses and carry water from that nearby source to flush the toilet for their family. Babies no longer died from cholera and intestinal diseases. The, the benefits of clean water are more than just having an easy drink. It's, it spills out to the whole community and transforms the life. Why families that were spending two and a half hours a day on average getting water suddenly were spending something more like 15 minutes a day getting water that you need. Now for us, of course, we spend zero minutes a day getting the water that we need, so it is a little hard to imagine, but water is such an essential thing to life for those people in Laos, and also for this woman at the well in Samaria. See, when Jesus is talking about living water, the the word he's using is he's talking about running water, clean water, water that moves and flows, water that you can drink, water that gives life. And when this woman comes to the well to get water, it's easy for us to miss the fact that she's coming to get water that she needs to survive her daily life. And she needs to come every day and carry 20 or 30 gallons a day for her household, if not more, just to survive. She needs water desperately. And then she meets Jesus. And the funny thing is, Jesus didn't have to meet her. He didn't have to go through Samaria. Oh, I know that's what the scripture said. Jesus had to go through Samaria. But if you look it up on a map and you know how people used to move around back then, Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. He was on his way from Jerusalem and Judea down in the southern part of Israel, and he needed to go north to his home area of Galilee. Well, the easiest way, the normal way for a Jew to go at that time would be to go from Jerusalem downhill to Jericho to the Dead Sea area and then take the easy sloping roads up along the Jordan River until you come to the Sea of Galilee. It's also the safe way. It's the way most pilgrims to Jerusalem went. See, it was risky to go through Samaria for Jews. You might get attacked. Pilgrims were sometimes attacked on their way to the temple. And they were not welcome in Samaria for reasons that go way back in history, all the way to the time of David and Solomon. And when that kingdom broke up, suddenly there was the northern kingdom, based in Samaria, and the southern kingdom, based in Jerusalem. Well, those two kingdoms did not get along, and the the northern kingdom fell into idolatry and slavery and were taken off into exile more than 100 years before the southern kingdom. And then when the, the people of Judah also returned from exile, what they found when they came back was that there were people already there living in Samaria who called themselves followers of Yahweh but who did not worship God in Jerusalem and did not worship God in the right way. And, and when those Jew, uh, Jewish uh, settlers came back to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem, they tried to rebuild the walls and the temple. And the people who opposed them, who said, no, we don't think we need to do that, were the Samaritan Jews, the Samaritans. So they had this long-standing 400-year-old enmity that's simmering there beneath the surface. Jews just don't go to Samaria. Jesus did not have to go there, and yet there he is, tired after this long journey of going up and down through the mountains. It is not the easy way, but the hard way, sitting at a well. 
presumably thirsty. He needs something to drink. And maybe he knows something we don't know yet in the story. Maybe he knows that seeds are already planted in Samaria and that the fields are already ready to harvest. So Jesus sits down at the well and he sees this Samaritan woman come and get water. And the scene is set, even if you don't realize it. This is a a type scene, by the way. It's a, a scene that occurs again and again in the Bible. Now, a type scene, you would recognize one if you saw one. Uh, In movies, in in teen movies, for example, when a boy and a girl bump into each other in the hall and spill their books on the floor, you know that by the end of the movie, they're going to be together. Uh, In a Hallmark movie, when a, a couple meets in the town square and the snow starts to fall and, and there's a, a, a fountain bubbling water nearby, you know someone is going to get down on one knee and propose. Or in an old country western, uh, when the, the guy with a white hat rides in on a white horse into town and at the other end of the street you see the guy with a black hat riding into town on his dark horse, you know that something is going to go down. Well, in the Bible, uh, when a man and a woman meet at a well, that is a type scene. That is a thing, and it means marriage. You see, Rebecca comes to a well to get water, and she is betrothed to Isaac. Or, or Jacob himself meets his wife Rachel at a well, and he falls so head over heels with her that he'll work for 14 years just to be free enough to marry her. Moses meets his wife at a well too. You see, wells are where women and men meet in the Bible, where they fall in love, where they get promised to each other and get married. So when Jesus meets a woman at a well, well, we we readers know that Jesus never gets married, but, but we should pay attention to what's going on between these two people because something deeply relational is about to happen. And it starts with Jesus asking for a drink. You see, Jesus is starting off on the wrong foot here. He's already made three social mistakes just by getting those words out of his mouth. The first thing, he's in Samaria at all as a Jew. The second mistake, Jesus is a man speaking to a woman who he does not know all alone. And third, Jesus dares ask her for water, something that Jews and Samaritans should not do. They should not share food and drink. They should not use the same utensils. He's asking for something that will make him unclean. And the Samaritan woman, she knows her faith, and she knows his faith, perhaps even better than Jesus seems to, because she knows that what he is asking is wrong. It is wrong. He should not do that. She knows that he is risking being accused of immorality just by talking to her. And that's why she dares to challenge his question. I mean, uh, who is this woman anyway, by the way? You, you may have heard sermons about this Samaritan woman at the well, and I just want to clear the deck a little bit, as one scholar says, of anything that is not in the text. You see, this is not a story about Jesus forgiving a sinful woman. The word sin appears nowhere in the story. The word forgiveness appears nowhere in the story. Jesus doesn't tell us she's a prostitute or an adulteress or anything of the sort. We just know the facts, and they're confusing. She's a Samaritan woman coming at midday to the well. Uh, She's had five husbands, and the man she is with is not her husband. Uh, Whatever her story is, it's bound to be confusing and painful and shameful. 
Well, she, she may have been widowed five times, one scholar says. She may have, have been, some of you have been through uh, widowhood once, but imagine going through that five times, one after the other. She, she may have been infertile. And so these men, according to the law, could have divorced her one after the other because she could have no children. And here she is with this fifth, and who knows what's going to happen. She might be destitute and desperate. She might be doing whatever she can to survive. Whatever the reason is, she is isolated from society. She comes to the well in the midday heat when no one else is there, so she doesn't have to face people's scorn and shame. But then she meets Jesus, and he offers her none of that. No, instead, Jesus offers her water. Well, she may know things about religion, but does she know God's gift of grace? Does she know who Jesus is? Well, no. No, she doesn't. And she doesn't know that what he gives is living water, a free-flowing water, a soul-filling, unending, overflowing water. And the Samaritan woman is still confused by Jesus. At first, he asks her for a drink. And now he's offering her water. But does she know who he is? He's offering her water and she says, But sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Are are you greater than our father Jacob? Um, Yes, he is. And as desperately as she needs water, as greatly as Jacob and his family and his flocks and herds needed that water to survive, Jesus needs nothing at all. He gives this water freely to anyone who needs it most. And he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You see, the water Jesus gives is soul water. It cannot go dry. It is life water. It comes from Jesus himself through the Holy Spirit. It is water that overflows and keeps on flowing out to the thirsty. And the woman replies, "Uh, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She knows her need, but she also knows her shame and her fear. She knows that she needs water, but she fears the, the physical and emotional effort it costs her to get it every single day. And Jesus puts his finger right there on her sore spot. He says, Go. Call your husband and come back. And she replies, I I have no husband. And Jesus says, you are right. You have had five husbands and the man that you now have is not your husband because he knows her story. And even though we don't know all the details of her story, Jesus does. And he does not ask anything of her except to come out of her shame to receive this gift of grace And whether her story is hard because of sin or sadness or suffering, Jesus doesn't demand her repentance or offer her forgiveness. He simply offers her living water, the thing she really needs. And as often happens when someone's sore spot is touched, the woman changes the subject. 
And she points to this major controversy that's going on between Jews and Samaritans. Maybe that will get Jesus' attention away from her. And the the question is, where should people worship? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Should he be worshipped here in Samaria on one of those mountains or, or in Jerusalem and in the temple? But Jesus doesn't care about the controversies of that day. He gets to the heart of the matter. It's not where you worship, but how. And it's the same problem that John's readers have years later when this gospel is written. Where do we worship now that the temple is gone and destroyed? How can we worship God? Well, the answer is the same that Jesus gives to the Samaritan woman. Jesus is here. And those who are in Christ worship in spirit and in truth. The the body of Christ, the church, is the true place of worship. It's not on any particular mountain or temple. It is the body of Christ gathered together to worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the woman seems to know her theology, though, because she knows that the Messiah is going to come and make this all clear. And that is when Jesus reveals himself to her. The one you are talking about, I am he. I am. Really, in Greek, it's just that word, I am. And this is the first of the I am statements in the Gospel of John because this one has no object. Jesus is simply, I am. The Lord, one with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And and the scene pauses suddenly here because the woman doesn't say anything. And suddenly in the distance we see the disciples appearing and they're coming back to buy food from buying food in town and they see Jesus talking to this Samaritan woman and they wonder why he's doing that. And maybe Jesus and the woman fall silent when they realize that people are coming. And as the disciples arrive, the woman leaves in a hurry. She leaves her jar behind. She does not need water anymore because she has found the living water. And maybe she leaves it there because she plans on coming back soon because she goes into town and tells anyone who will listen about Jesus. And she says what the disciples said. Come and see. Could this be the Messiah? And so people start coming out of town to meet Jesus. Meanwhile, Jesus and the disciples have this conversation about, strangely, food and not water. But it's related, and we'll see how. Because Jesus won't eat, he says, because he has food already. But the disciples don't get it as usual, so Jesus explains. He says, uh, the point is that the harvest is ready. It's funny that he starts talking about harvests after all of this talk about living water to suddenly be talking about food. But the point is making is that people are ripe and ready to hear the word. The people are ready to follow Jesus. These Samaritans may be worshiping God in the wrong way, but they know the scriptures. They know the stories. They know who God is. And when they meet the Messiah, they know him. They're ready to follow Jesus. And we and the disciples Do not know, says Jesus. We do not know who is ready, but Jesus does. Jesus knows who is ready to be his disciple. And the Samaritan woman may be the first and best example of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. She is the first true evangelist in the Gospel of John. She's the one who gives witness to who Jesus is and what he's done for her. Well, just compare her to Nicodemus, who we heard from last week. Nicodemus is this man. He's a Jew. He's a Pharisee. He's a religious leader. Yet he comes to Jesus at night. 
And he leaves in the dark, probably just as confused as before. Meanwhile, in the next chapter, we have this woman, a Samaritan, a a, a nobody, a a shame-filled person, and yet she comes to Jesus under the bright midday sun, and she leaves with this joyful word of witness of what Jesus is like. She is the first example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and John wants us to be like her. See, when you meet the I am, when you receive that living water, it just can't help but pour out of you in this cascade of living water, of words and witness. Could this be the Messiah? He told me everything I ever did. And we could add, and he still spoke to me, and he still loved me, and he still gave me the living water. And the Samaritans, whom this woman goes to evangelize, she, uh, they respond to that word, with welcome. They go, they meet Jesus, they see and know who he is, and they invite him to come stay with them for two days. And surprisingly, Jesus accepts. I mean, I wonder what his disciples thought about that. This is not just a detour through Samaria. This is a a stay in a Samaritan home. This man eats with sinners and Samaritans. And the people of Samaria first believed because of this woman's witness. They hear Jesus' words. They hear his teachings, his presence among them as the word made flesh. And now they say, we know that this man really is the savior of the world. This really is the Messiah. And they give to Jesus that title that the the Roman emperor Caesar has just claimed for himself somewhere across the Mediterranean Sea. No, Jesus, this dusty walking prophet is truly the savior of the world. Water flows downhill, like those water systems we would build in Laos. The water had to flow downhill to come into the village. That's gravity. That's why we call them gravity-fed water systems. And it flows to the lowest point. And the water comes and it evaporates and collects or percolates through, going on to the water cycle. I heard one scholar say that living water also flows to the lowest point. Living water goes to the lowest point. You see, Jesus meets this Samaritan woman where she's at. She is low. She is lower than low. She is downcast and downtrodden and humbled. She can hardly show her face in society. And Jesus meets her there. He offers her this living water that flows to her deepest hurt and need. His water washes over her deepest sin. His living water fills her deepest need. And then it overflows. It overflows into witness. And she goes out and pours out this living water she's received so that others can hear it and receive it too. And Jesus meets us where we're at. A living water meets us at our lowest point, when we are down low, when we most need refreshment and grace and salvation, when we most need Jesus. And Jesus gives us what we need and more. He gives us himself. He gives us his presence, his body. I am. And he gives living water that overflows to, to cleanse and to cover and to fill up and to restore and to bring life. And his living water flows out of us in these words of witness. We call out to others, come and see, come and see. Uh, We invite people to wonder with us, could this be the Messiah? 
We, we ask, could the church, the body of Christ, the people of God, be the place where God meets you and fills you and cleanses you? Because that's Jesus' invitation today. Come and drink, all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. Drink and eat and have your fill. Come and then go. Go and give witness. Go and sow the seeds. Go and assume the seed has already been sown. Go and get out there and reap the harvest, for it is ready. Reap the gifts of grace. Go and be my witnesses to Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, you've revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the living word, who gives living water to us, overflowing to to cover our need and our hurt and our sin. And we ask, Lord, please give us this water. Meet us in our deepest need and give us what we most need, that we may be filled to overflowing with your living water, overflowing into words of witness overflowing into come and see, come look, could this be? Yes, that we may know Jesus Christ and we may proclaim him to all that everyone may see and know and love Jesus. Give us Jesus, Lord. He's who we need. Above all, the living word made flesh among us that we may know and love and serve him all our days. In Jesus Christ we pray and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll continue in worship before our God as we sing uh, two songs. um, uh, As the deer pants for water, so we long for God.